Take your Bibles tonight and be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be uh, looking at a little bit at uh, the challenge, the opportunity, and some of the struggles of the Corinthian church, particularly as it pertains to world missions, evangelism. You know, um, just like there are no perfect people, there are no perfect churches. And one of the things I like about the church of Corinth is it had many struggles. And I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, they had serious problems, but not unlike churches today. Churches have people. People have problems. And so, but God, one of the lessons in it is God doesn't just give up on them. God keeps working with them. The Apostle Paul, God's person representative there to this church is, uh, as we see tonight, we'll see tonight, kept uh, keeping before them the potential that they had. And so we're going to read a few verses to begin our lesson tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Please stand with us if you would please. We'll read beginning in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 14. By the way, I've been encouraged to see people using their little, the notebooks we gave out, the little booklet, and keeping notes in there, and, and uh, it's encouraging. I've certainly used mine. Second Corinthians 10 and verse 14 says, For we, Paul says, stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also, in preaching the gospel of Christ. So Paul is talking about his personal ministry in Corinth, and we didn't go beyond uh, what we were supposed to do, but we reached out to you, bringing you the gospel, preaching the gospel. Verse 15, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors. We didn't, we're not... We're not boasting or acknowledging or, or glorying in what other people have done, other people's labors, but having hope, verse 15, that having hope when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. And verse, the, the sentence continues into verse 16 to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. And uh, we're going we're gonna to look at this phrase in beginning there in verse, um, verse 15 and where it says, uh, when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged. I want us to think about that phrase tonight we shall be enlarged by you. And we'll begin by, by just uh, looking at the meaning of that and the application to what we're talking about tonight. And let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you again for the privilege of being in this place tonight. And Lord, that we can assemble as your people, as not only your children, as born-again believers, but as members of the body of Christ here, that we can assemble and we can open our hearts and our Bibles and look into your word to learn, to grow, and to become more of what you have for us. And we pray that would certainly be the case tonight. I pray for those tonight in this room that uh, aren't saved, that have 
not yet personally received Christ, don't know what it is to be born again, that you'd work in hearts tonight and bring conviction and not only reprove us of our sin and righteousness, but judgment to come. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to begin by just taking a close-up look at this phrase that we highlighted a moment ago in verse 15. We shall be enlarged by you. Now obviously the we, as Paul is talking about, is him and his team. They've traveled, they've preached, Timothy was with him, and he says, we, we shall be enlarged by you. And who is, he, who, who is he speaking of when he says you? He's talking about the church at Corinth. Paul is writing, Paul is a missionary evangelist. Paul is uh, writing one of the churches that he was instrumental in starting. And he says, we will be enlarged by you. So he's talking about how he's going to benefit, how he's, gonna, he's going to actually be affected by what they do. We will be enlarged by you. That word enlarged is a translation of the Greek word megaluno. means to magnify, to increase, to make great. We will be enlarged by you. Think of it like this, making missionaries great again. Um, we... We will be enlarged by you. To do what? Look in verse 16. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. So Paul is clearly making a connection. This is not something that we're writing into the text. It's something we find in the text. A connection between the faith of the Christians and particularly the faith of the church in Corinth and the expansion of the gospel. Look at it again in verse uh, verse 16, verse 15, when your faith is increased, you, the church, when your faith is increased, that we, the, the evangelists, the missionaries, we shall be enlarged by you according to, your, to our rule abundantly to what? To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. So he says, we want to go further. Uh, we want to take the gospel further. But the increase of your faith, this is what he's saying, the increase of your faith would be instrumental in us going further. So there's this unmistakable, undeniable connection between the church, the condition of the church, and the success of missions. Now that's sort of the, the basic premise that I want to work on tonight. I'm going to back up now and look at the larger context. But think about that. Let's just really, let's, if that be true, and it is true, that the work of missions, here's a missionary speaking, the work of missions is connected to, tied to, dependent upon the faith of the churches. And we know that's true, right? It is true. And we, I didn't always think like this. I always thought of, you know, missionary success, missionary, you know, uh, reaching people, missionary starting churches. And, and I, I thought more, more in terms of, you know, the faith of the missionary and the ability of the missionary and his determination and, and the Spirit of God working in him. And all those things are important, but Paul's not talking about that. He, he would take up on his end of the deal, which is he's going to be the missionary he should be, but he says what we do depends on you. And that is something that I think we really need to take seriously, not just during missions conference, but any time. Their, their, their success, if you want to use the word success, and success is not measured in numbers, success is measured in faithfulness and giving out the good seed of the Word of God. But their success 
is inseparably tied to the churches and the faith of the churches. Now, that's, that's the, the basic thing we want to think about tonight. But now I want to back away from that phrase we've emphasized. Just take a step back and, and look at this church, the Corinthian church. A local assembly not unlike this assembly, except they were in the region of Achaia, which is west of Athens, the southern part of what is now uh, Greece. And they had, they had many struggles. And, and one of the things that we're looking at tonight, and I don't want to... I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think it's key to understand the significance of our text and how it relates to this. But this is a very awkward communication that Paul is having with this church because one of the things he's doing in this passage, and not just in this passage, but other passages, is he's, he feels compelled to defend his own ministry, his apostleship. Now, I would think... You know, if I, knew, if I knew the Apostle Paul, if I lived in his generation, and I knew what he was doing, I would think, who needs to defend Paul, right? Paul's ministry is enough defense. But the, there were those inside the church at Corinth that were critical of him. They didn't support him. They didn't feel, they, they were actually undermining him. And so he's defending his apostleship to, about, because there are those in this troubled church of Corinth that were questioning his integrity and his authority. In chapter 10 there in verse 12, if you look there, he says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. There were those that were just in the church building themselves up, commending themselves, making themselves great. We're not going to do that, he says. But they, talking about these people, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. They're very foolish what they're doing. Verse 13, but we will not boast of things without our measure, outside of the realm of our authority. But according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. And if you look in, in chapter 11, of 2 Corinthians, and uh, verse 12, he says, But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such, talking about these people, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. These are very strong words Paul is using concerning these critics. Look in verse 23 of chapter 11. Are they ministers of Christ, those people? I speak as a fool. He says, I feel foolish saying these things. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. We hear those passages, we read those passages, but in the context, Paul is defending himself against those who are not taking his ministry seriously. Now let's think for a moment about the history of the Corinthian church. Paul first visited this church on his second missionary journey when, he had, when God directed him to go west across the Aegean Sea. Uh, when he, and and uh, at that time, 
uh, Luke joined them. And he, he finally made his way all the way down the region of Macedonia. You know, Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi makes his way down to, to Athens in the Corinth. He makes his way down to the southern part of that region. And there in Corinth, he invested 18 months of his life. Now, that may not sound long, like a long time, but if you're familiar with the New Testament, for Paul to stay anywhere for a year and a half was a long stay. And what is he doing there? He's teaching and preaching. And he, he had a big part in this area. I had this thought yesterday just thinking about Paul's relationship to them, and I thought about these two epistles, First and Second Corinthians, in relation to all the other epistles that Paul wrote to churches. He wrote, for instance, he wrote to the church at Philippi, and his epistle is four chapters. Try to think about this. You don't have to remember it. Just think, put it in, in context. He wrote to the Colossians, and that book was four chapters long. He wrote to the Galatians. That was six chapters long. He wrote to the church at Ephesus. All these are churches that he helped start. He wrote to the church at Ephesus. That was six chapters long. He wrote two epistles to the Thessalonians. Combined, those two epistles was eight, was eight chapters long. The longest of all of those was to the Romans. And he hadn't been there when he wrote it. That was 16 chapters. So that's 44 chapters of, of Bible text. 44 chapters he wrote to six churches. About seven chapters per church. And I, so let's think about that. He writes these six churches. As an average, he gave them about seven chapters of inspired writings for each church. To this church, one church, Corinth, he wrote 29 chapters. That's an amazing thing. More than half of his, more than half of his writing to the epistles of churches in the New Testament was to this one church. And I think that's significant when you think about it. And why? Why did he, you say he loved them? Yeah, but he loved the church at Philippi. He loved the church at Ephesus. He loved the church at Thessalonica. All these places we, we know he was very fond of. So why did he invest basically two-thirds of his writing to this church? And the answer is very simple, I think. Because they had so many conflicts. They had so many problems. It was a troubled church. They were a carnal church. He said, you're carnal. That's one of the worst things. For a person would say to me, you're carnal, that'd be one of the most hurtful things a person could say. You're carnal. And he said, you're full of strife. I'm talking about things he said to this church. He's, he talked about their spiritual pride. He talked about their disobedience. He talked about, he devoted two whole chapters just to their unscriptural worship practices. The fact that they were driven by emotions, but not by the scriptures and the spirit of the Lord. He, he, they had issues with the Lord's Supper. All, so he's dealing with all these problems, and he wrote and wrote and wrote about all these problems. And on top of all that, along with all that, they had these critics. While he was gone evangelizing, after he left 18 months, he's gone evangelizing. People come in, and we know they were Jewish they were Jewish, uh, had heritage, but because he said to them, are they Pharisees? I'm more than a Pharisee. So they came in and began to undermine his ministry, maligning his testimony. And Paul said, I'm not going to stoop to that level. I'm not going 
to stoop to what they're doing and I'm going to, I'm going to accurately judge myself by the standard of God. And if you look in verse 14 again, you know, where he says, We stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reach not unto you, for we come as far as unto you. He's saying, you know, they were criticizing him of act, acting outside the realm of his God-given authority. He was an apostle. And Paul was there first. They weren't there first. Paul was there first, bringing them the gospel. He, would not, he wasn't going to brag or boast on what uh, he did, basically taking, taking, coming in and taking over somebody else's work. That's what they were doing. They were coming in and bringing division. So you say, why do you say all that? Because in the context of all of that, we find these words, which is our primary text here in verses 15 and 16, where he says in verse 15, not boasting of things without our measure. We're not, we're not boasting of things outside the realm of our authority, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope that when your faith is increased, that you shall, we shall be enlarged by you. Enlarged to do what? Verse 16, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. He wanted to take the gospel to places beyond Corinth. Now, here's one of the significant, one of the main things that makes that significant. Corinth was the farthest place he had ever been with the gospel. That's the farthest west, the point further away from Antioch of Syria where he began, or Jerusalem, then Judea. He was the farthest point, but he says, I want to take the gospel further. By the way, that ought to be the heart of a missionary, right? Not to go to places where there are churches to be found in the region. These, he, he said, I want to go to places nobody's been. Thank God for that. But he says in verse 15, having hope, when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. You know, um, it brings this question up to me about the work of missions. Think about the work of missions. Can the work of evangelism and missions, first of all, can it be hindered? Can God's work of evangelism and missions and starting churches be hindered? And we'd say, well, certainly. I would say certainly. If I was answering the question, absolutely. But what, what hinders it? How could it be hindered? And one person may think, well, it's hindered. It's probably hindered because of the wickedness of unbelievers. I mean, believers are so wicked and in some places savage. Is that what hinders the work of missions? Is it the presence of idolatry and false religions and idols? Does that, does that hinder the work of missions? But that's not what Paul was talking about in verse 15. He says, but having hope, when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. Now for reasons that we probably don't fully know, Paul was saying he didn't feel like he could expand the gospel further westward, which is where he wanted to go. He wrote about how he must see Rome. He wanted to get to Italy. You know, he had plans to go to Spain. I mean, he wanted to go to these places. But he felt he couldn't expand westward while this church 
was in the condition that they were in. He says, you're going to have to step it up. If we're going to be able to have, if we're going to be able to go further, take the gospel further, he says, your faith is going to have to increase. And what were their problems? Now, we could look at this and say, well, what would it matter? Corinth has the gospel. Uh, Corinth has, people have been saved. There's a church established in Corinth. Why not just go on and preach the gospel in other places? But that's because we may not understand the burden that Paul had for this church that they would become what they were supposed to be. More than his burden for the Thessalonians, more than his burden for the church at Ephesus, more than his burden for the church at Philippi, he said, until your faith grows, we don't feel like we can really press on to take it another place. They weren't united. I'm sure some of them were spiritual. Obviously, some of them had to be spiritual. But far too many of them, in his mind, were not spiritual. You know, people can sit in a church and become accustomed to carnality, but God is never accustomed to carnality in a Christian's life. Never. It's never okay. It's never tolerable. I mean, I've had men actually say to me, well, that's just a part of the way we are. I mean, we just have this, we can't always live in the Spirit all the time. I'm telling you, God wants us to live in the Spirit to walk in the Spirit, not to be fleshly minded, not to be naturally minded. And so, as I read this, I'm thinking about the, the important role that churches play in getting the gospel to places that desperately need the light. And as a Christian, as an individual Christian, but more importantly, specifically, or Particularly, as a church member, we ought to always be looking at ways that we can point out things, figure out things, eliminate things, change things, repair things, replace things that might be a hindrance to the gospel getting out. The Christian life is not just about us, you know, feeling good about ourselves and good of our family. And, I mean, I'm for that. I'm for loving our family. I'm for, but that's not what this is all about. It's about reaching people with the gospel. We ought to always be looking at, at what God wants to teach us. And yes, there are limitations. But the limitations are not, are not savages that live in jungles who don't know how to read or don't have a single... There, there are thousands, literally thousands of people groups, language groups, that don't have one single page of Bible in their language. There's something about that that doesn't seem right to me. When we have, I have many Bibles on my shelves. They don't even have one page, one verse. But I want to tell you, that's not the great hindrance to the gospel because the reason they don't have verses and books of the Bible is not because of them, it's because of what's not being done by Christians. 
We can't say, shame on them, they're heathen, they act like heathen, shame on us, that our faith is not such, and I'm talking about churches that have the truth, shame on us that we're not doing more to get the message to them. The limitations on spreading the gospel are not due to God's lack of interest. God's very much interested. It's not due to the gospel's lack of relevance. The gospel is the greatest need that people have. It's certainly not due to a world that's lacking in prospects. They're abundant. You know what Paul is doing here to this church that's carnal and selfish? strife-ridden. He's laying at their feet the real possibility that the gospel is being hindered by their lack of spirituality. That's what he's doing in this context. He says, we shall... Look at the language. We've read it over and over again, but look in verse 15. We shall be enlarged by you. If we're going to get where we want to go, it's going to be because of what you do. I don't know how to make people or help people to take ownership of their personal responsibility. You know, because the things I'm saying to me are, are pretty serious. And yet some people, you know, don't, it doesn't even res- register with them. And it's not just about, you say, well, I give, a, I give an offering every week. It's more than that. I mean, thank God for that. That's a part of it. But that's not all there is to it. Just like we've talked about. We, I mean, I, I, I would love to see teenagers, and I'm not, I, please don't take, be offended by this, but teenagers are sort of notorious for being selfish. I'd love to see teenagers get a real burden for encouraging other teenagers on the mission field and loving them, and praying for them, and encouraging them. But you're going to, to do that, you're going to have to change the way you think about life. It's not all about your fun and games. And it's, it's, there's more to life than fun and games. There's a world that's perishing. And who has been given that responsibility to do something? It's the churches. And if you are a member of this church, you need to take ownership of that. It's not my job as the pastor. It's not even your parents' job because they're older than you. If you are saved, you have a responsibility to take what's been given to you and help give it to other people. Churches need to take ownership of this. Christians need to take ownership of this. Our spirituality or the lack thereof influences other people. It may influence somebody that you are friends with. It may influence someone where you work. It may influence someone, your extended family. And it may influence someone thousands of miles from here. And for you to be so short-sighted to say, well, you know, I'm just, I know I'm selfish and I know I'm not a, a real strong Christian, but I don't really think it affects anybody. You're wrong about that. Paul put, put this squarely at the feet of this church and said, the thing that's standing between me and getting to people who've never heard is you. 
That's pretty strong. Right? What factors might affect a church's missionary footprint? How, where we are around the world, what we're doing around the world. And I just want to mention some things without elaborating upon them. But one of them is found in our text, and that's unbelief. When your faith is increased, verse 15... He said, if we're going to go further, your faith has got to go further. Your faith has got to grow. Now, my personal view is, my personal belief about this passage, is that faith is not just talking about the faith to give money. I don't believe that's all it's talking about. We may use it in that way, and I think that's a part of it, because it does take faith. It takes a measure of faith for every person who wants to participate Every week or once a month or however you give to missions to say, I'm going I'm to take what I could give for myself and spend for myself and I'm going to give it for world evangelization. It takes faith, right? That's why we call it faith promise. It takes faith. It takes a measure of faith. And, and there, are, there are some teenagers in our church, I don't know exactly who and I don't know how often, but I know there are who consistently give to the work of missions. Teenagers. You say, teenagers don't have any money. Really? Follow them into the fast food joint sometimes. They got money. What it takes is one that has enough faith to say, instead of me keeping this for myself or buying me another pair of tennis shoes that I don't need, I'm going to give something to the work of God. It takes a measure of faith to do that. By the way, same thing goes for adults. And I'm going to say this, and you'd, you'd, I'm welcome you to challenge me on it and try to prove me wrong, but I, I believe it with all of my heart. There's not a person in this room that can't give something to missions. Not a person. It's not about not having the resources or means. You say, well, I, you know, what, what, what difference would $5 make? If it's more than you've ever given, $5 is $5 more than you've given. It's a start. But I don't think this faith here is just about the faith to give. I think it's the faith to live right, to quit living carnally, to grow up spiritually. I'm convinced that what Paul is saying is the thing that's keeping me from moving on is I'm so concerned about you. That'd be a, bad, that'd be a hard pill to swallow as a church, wouldn't it? Paul saying the... He, they, they are at the end of the line. They are at the end of the road. This is as far as he's ever been. And he said, I want to go further, but I can't because I'm so concerned about you. So unbelief. Unbelief is a factor that hinders the work of God. I thank God for the for the mission, you know, when I say the, a footprint, I mean that's the, that's the influence, that's the mark that our church is having for missions. I'm glad for that. But I'm telling you, God could do more if we would trust Him for it. Not, think about this. Not just the faith to give your money or the faith to become a spiritual person, but listen, how about this young person? How about the faith for you to say, 
and mean it with all your heart. God, if you want me to prepare my life to take the gospel to some other place, I'm available. Just you, I want you to use me. How about that kind of faith? Our parents to say, as we heard the other night, parents to say, God, call people to the mission field, even if it's my own children, even if it means taking my, my grandchildren to another part of the world. I'm talking about quit. we're going to start living by faith. What factors hinder a church's missionary footprint? Number one is unbelief. Here's another, a second one. Disobedience. And answer this question in your mind tonight. Is witnessing to people, obeying the, taking the Great Commission seriously, is that a command or a suggestion? What do you think it is? It's a command. That means if I don't do it, I'm disobedient. Right? I'm being disobedient. I'm disobeying. If I'm not going to do it, I'm diso if I'm not going to get serious about taking the gospel around the world, what is the Great Commission? Go, tell, baptize, instruct, teach, start churches, keep training. That's the Great Commission. Amen. And that Great Commission was not given to the apostles. It was given to churches. And if we don't take it seriously, we're living in disobedience. I don't, I don't think I have to draw a picture for this, but I, I just really want to make sure we understand this. When God says do something and you don't do it, you're a disobedient Christian, right? That's pretty serious. What, what, what hinders the gospel? Unbelief, disobedience. The third thing it does is distractions. We're too busy about too many other things. We have little time for evangelism. You know, if your eye is not single, then your, your whole life is going to be divided. That means we have a single focus. How focused are we, how serious are we, or how easily are we distracted? How easily we can be distracted. My wife and I have conversations about this frequently because both of us can be distracted. We start off to do something, before we know it, we've been distracted by something else. We need to be focused on missions. That's one of the reasons why we're going to implement some of these other things to help us stay focused on it. Ask, let, me, let me give you... Two ways, two simple ways that we could all evaluate our life spiritually and get an idea of how much missions means to us. Two simple ways. Number one, look at your checkbook. Look at your bank statement. What am I doing for missions? And if we think we're, you know, if we think that we're really doing something for missions, it ought to show up in our checkbook. Let me give you a second way. Look at your prayer life. Look at your prayer life. Praying for missions. Am I praying, seeking the Lord for missionaries, for the work of missions? 
We need to be focused, not so easily distracted. A fourth thing, a fourth hindrance is complacency. Just a lack of compassion, a lack of zeal. I mentioned this uh, the other when we were singing that song, Set My Soul Afire. It's not, it's not all that unusual to find someone who's lukewarm spiritually. Here's what's unusual. For someone to admit it and say, Pastor, I know that my heart is not as passionate and compassionate for people as it ought to be. We get too complacent. And hell is real, right? Forever's a long time. These are things that hinder the work of missions. You know, you know one of the things we've seen in the last uh, several months in our church is an increase, a steady increase in the number of guests and newcomers we're finding in our church. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's just it's, it's obvious to some of us. And you know what? We give God the credit for that. We give God the thanks for that and the praise for that. But there's something that's, I think there's something that's associated with that, and that is people have been going and inviting people more, going to more doors, going and seeing people. There's a, you know, whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And I'm just saying, we can become very complacent. One of the ways I think I can tell that my heart is not as right with God as it ought to be is if my heart is not for people the way it should be. Because the God who sent His Son to die on Calvary also lives inside of every one of His children and He is about reaching people with the gospel. And the closer we are to Him, the more we're going to be conscious of that. And the less conscious we are of that, it ought to be like an an alarm going off saying, you're not, you're, maybe there's something needs to be changed in your spiritual life. Complacency, the last thing I'll mention. I'm talking about factors that will affect the church's footprint. Our faith, or lack of, a, of our, our obedience, our disobedience, our distractions, or our focus, our complacency, or our zeal, and finally, just the simple term of carnality. And I use that word because that was the word Paul used to describe this church. They were carnal. What does that mean? It means fleshly. It means natural, not spiritual. You know, if I were, if I were to draw a line tonight, and I'm going to say, um, right here at this corner, this represents a, a life of carnality. That means you, you just live according to the flesh. You just do what's natural. You respond naturally, you act naturally, it's just the way you are. That's just me, right? This is carnal living. And then I'm going to put another line right here, and this, this line is being filled with the Spirit of God. Filled. It means that I'm yielded to God, the fruit of the Spirit is evident in my life, I'm not living for self, I'm living for God, I'm living for others. This is, a, this is the spirit-filled life. That's a life of carnality, living for self. This is a life of spirituality, filled with the spirit. Now, with that as a, as a, as a gauge, where would you put your life? What would you, where would you say? Would you say this is where you live? Dead to self, filled with the spirit, 
walking in the Spirit? Or maybe you'd say, honestly, this is where I live. By the way, this is where all lost people live. They're just fleshly, carnal, self, selfish, self-thinking people. That's the way they are. Where would you say you're, you're, you are on this scale? I'm just saying, carnality, carnality does not, cannot coexist with having a real passion for the work of God. Carnality is seen in selfishness. Not being spiritual, not spirit-filled. If I were to ask your husband, your wife, your closest friends, if I were to ask them about you, are you confident that the most of the time they are filled with the Spirit of God? What would they say? You say, well, I don't think they could tell. I think people can tell. There's a big difference in being carnal and being spiritual. So here's the, here's the premise of this whole lesson is this. Can the work of evangelism and missions be hindered? And the answer is yes. And what was hindering Paul from taking the gospel further? Places he had never been. He said, I didn't say this, he said, the thing that's, that I'm, that's holding me back is your lack of faith. Paul, I believe this, Paul was so concerned about them, about the fact that there were people in the church that were undermining, there were people who were carnal, people are taking each other to court, people are living in that church and, and, and known sin. He just didn't feel comfortable. He didn't feel like he could go further. So what is needed then in churches? Missions conferences are good, right? I love missions conferences. I love the focus of missions conferences. I've enjoyed the preaching, the music. I've enjoyed every bit of the missions conference. Even though we didn't have a guest speaker, even though we didn't have a lot of missionaries, to me, the point has been driven home by God through His Word. I'm thankful for it. But you know what's really lacking? What's needed? Perpetually being revived. Continually being revived. Continually drawing closer to God, being yielded to God. And... To me, it's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought that my life, my carnality could have a direct effect, a negative effect on people around the world who desperately need the gospel. That is a sobering thought tonight. And one that challenges me to be as yielded to God and obedient to God, as spiritually minded a person as God would let me be. And I, wish, I would love to think and I pray that our church would respond to that call. This week, Lord, I want to give you Areas of my life maybe I've never given you. Things in my life. I want, to, I, want to, I want to turn this over to you. I really want to be obedient. I want to give my life to you. Let, let God have his way. That would be a great thing. Amen.